Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The truth is that we are in a climate emergency. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and our economy. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. Those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful about criticizing those who have. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to the programme. So Boris Johnson will unveil the new approach to tackling COVID this week, preparing the country for a mass booster vaccination programme and potentially for jabs for teenagers this autumn. But the government has also confirmed that it's scrapping plans for mandatory vaccine certificates, those passports here in England, unlike what's happening in Scotland. Well, the Prime Minister is expected to hold a press conference tomorrow outlining how the government plans to keep the virus under control as we head into autumn and winter. Well, joining us now is John Crudas, Labour MP for Dagenham and Raynham and author of The Dignity of Labour. Thank you so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. We'll get on to discussing the book very shortly, but first uh, on today's uh, news on COVID. Do you welcome the scrapping of, of vaccine passports or do you think uh, Scotland has the approach right on this? Well, I was always slightly cautious about the, the idea of passports because the vaccination process doesn't stop me carrying the virus. So I couldn't quite see what the solution, what it was resolving, really, so, as well as issues around civil liberties and creating a more polarised country. So I'm not unhappy with that. Well, we'll see, we'll see the details of what comes out tomorrow, but I'm not unhappy with um, them pulling away from the question of vaccine passports because I couldn't really see technically how they would work. Um, more generally, we'll see what comes out tomorrow, not least because with the schools going back, there's a fear of a fourth phase of this. Um, and there are hints at um, the government being very fearful about a, a, another lockdown down the, down the road as we later in the autumn so we'll see how this all sort of works out but Mm. i do i do see the case for um vaccinating younger people um not least because of the experience of what's happening in the schools for example in scotland who went back earlier than us so let's just wait and see what comes out tomorrow in the details of their announcement okay uh well i'm speaking of the vaccine number the um COVID case numbers and the concerns around that, the British Medical Association uh, strongly criticising the government today in terms of policy having essentially caused more deaths, the lack of funding going into the pandemic having been hugely problematic, fears of an underestimate of what's really needed in terms of finances. I mean, I use these examples because the BMA has sort of synthesised the criticism of the government in this pandemic in a way that I wonder whether Labour has. Has Starmer failed on that front to deliver, you know, the criticism of government policy? Well, I'm not sure. He's in a, he's in a very difficult position. I think he's been, uh, for example, um, when he when he argued for um, to, to move into lockdowns, especially in the second and third phase, 
last year. He was criticised then, but um, with hindsight, they looked like the right calls because the government were too slow going in and too early coming out of the lockdown. So I think on balance, he's he's called it pretty well throughout. I do welcome the analysis today, actually, because I think it does look like a really thorough piece of work. And it plays into the politics, for example, of last week, where which could be a political inflection point um, because the government are now the behind for the first time in 149 polls. And their argument about reforming social care, it looks like all of the extra money announced will be going into the health service to deal with the backlog. So issues of social care won't be resolved. And all of this implies a a growing escalation of a problem in and around the health sector, which will play out over the next few years. And the politics of it could be very interesting in altering um, who's up and who's down in terms of the Westminster game. And I think if we look back in a few years' time, we might see this week and last week as being key moments where sort of politics change lanes as we emerge out of the year and a half of the COVID lockdowns. And politics began to shift in terms of the tax-raising policies and the commitments in terms of reforming social care, which looked like they won't happen in the immediate years following this announcement. Mm, very interesting stuff. Well, let's broaden it out and uh, focus on your book. In your book, you talk about the fractured relationship between the Labour Party uh, and the world of work. If the party could find new work, new voters from elsewhere, uh, perhaps more middle class voters, university educated voters, why does that matter? Um, because political parties don't just fall out of the air and they're not just created to chase votes. They are born out of traditions or... Uh, historic traditions, conceptions of justice. They're born out of a desire to uh, speak up for certain sections of society. And they're not easily jettisoned, I don't think, anyway. But you're right, I do think there is a debate, a sort of a quiet debate in and around Labour, which suggests that the old traditional associations with the working class offer diminishing returns, and we should embrace what someone like Thomas Piketty has called a Brahmin left, um, the more educated and those that are the greatest beneficiaries of the knowledge economy and our meritocracy. And they've captured left-wing parties, those constituencies, at the expense of the working class. And I, I basically make an argument that um, we should we should be fearful of going all the way down this road because I don't think there's the coalition to gain and retain power in this country just in the university towns or our urban environments. And that's not actually what the Labour Party was created to do. So today, um, which is the, sees the TUC opening, um, it's quite a good time to reflect and rethink how we understand Labour as an economic and social category. And that's what the book tries to do, to have a sort of rethink. I mean, it's not, yeah. you know, it's created an argument within the Labour Party about its essential purpose, really. Yeah, uh, and and surely th- that purpose is being challenged si- simply because of the digital economy. I mean, all those traditions you talk about the the uh, contract with with workers with labour. I mean, those workers are radically changing in terms of the workforce. I mean, in your book you revisit the Ford factory of the nineteen seventies in your constituency right. and the strong kind of right. communities that you talk about. I mean, those sorts of worker bonds surely have gone forever or have simply been radically altered by a digital world. I don't dispute that. I'm not sort of trying to stop the world I want to get off. I mean, in the 1950s, there's 43,000 workers on the Dagenham plant. In my constituency now, there's 2,000. Um, that world's not coming back again. Um, but 
I sort of argue against some of the technological determinism across the left, which embraces a world of post-capitalism, a world without work, of full automation, uh, universal basic income. And I suggest there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the robots aren't coming. And we underestimate the role and purpose of work in the lives as a source of dignity for many of our fellow citizens. So I simply add a cautionary note to some of those deterministic assumptions that the robots are coming and argue instead that we should seek to humanise the employment relationship once again and rethink the dignity of work in terms of some of the experiences of our fellow citizens. And I take the point that the big mass production of yesteryear is not coming back. But if you look at what's happening across the digital economy or some of the experiences in pandemic or hire, fire and rehire practices that are occurring across the economy, the world of work does need to be re-regulated and reinvestigated, I, I think. And there is a politics there, which I think you can see some of Labour's front bench inching towards in terms of some of the recent announcements over the last few weeks, which is trying to rethink the world of work as a, a future political space to be contested. Because obviously Boris Johnson is focusing in on the Red Wall constituency. But I don't think they will be able to reject fully the legacy of Margaret Thatcher, whose whole political project is built around deregulating Labour. And I don't think the Conservative Party, despite their sort of modern shape-shifting form, will be able to fully reject that legacy of Margaret Thatcher. So it creates opportunities for Labour if it's prepared to rebuild a new politics of work and not embrace some of this determinism about the end of work and the robots are coming. Is, is Labour fit for purpose on this, though? The, the new boss of the Unite Union, Sharon Graham, says she's no longer relying on the party. She She's pledged to fight for... Uh, to ca campaigns to, to unionise Amazon, for instance, and she's going to do that right. uh, outside the Labour Party. And, you know, she, she's an ally of your party, obviously. Yeah, yeah, but, but I think that's up to her. I mean, she's just been elected. She wants to pursue a more, you know, she wants to get back to basics about her union organising and representing people at work and maybe dial down a bit of the politics. I think that that's logical. I mean, look, assuming there's not going to be an election for a while, um, the world she inhabits is one where she has to fight industrially for her members. And, uh, you know, good luck to her. I mean, I don't think there's any... I mean, it's been seen as a big story that she's sort of rejecting Labour. I don't think that's quite what she's saying. I think she's just saying that let's get this union back to basics again. Let's think afresh about how we're representing and organising people at work. And I welcome that initiative. It's a sort of... Mm. It's almost a self-evident restatement of the purpose of her organisation, which yeah. I think uh, shouldn't yeah. surprise too many people. Although she talks about sort of not relying on, on Westminster. Um, right. But, but look, Keir Starmer, is he really the right person? And this question has been asked many times now. Is he the right person to reconnect Labour with the working class base? Does he get it? Well, you see, I look at this slightly differently to a lot of the journalistic sort of summary of where Keir Starmer is. I look at him as the son of a toolmaker and a nurse who was highly socially mobile. He was similar age to me, and we, we, we managed to get the first to get to university. He's been an extraordinary... He's gained a worldwide reputation as a defender of human rights before he became an MP, and I'd like to, him to rediscover some of that passion and energy that sort of animated him as a lawyer before he became an MP. And I just think he could speak to an agenda of new economic social rights for all citizens based around the dignity of the person because of his previous experiences as a very radical lawyer who gained a reputation internationally, um, independent of politics. And maybe he should... We, I'd like to hear 
what animated him before he became an MP and see if that can sort of illustrate the agenda he wants to develop over the years ahead. I think the jury's out, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, obviously, he's been in... I think, I think when he makes his speech to Labour Party Conference, it'll be one of the first times mm-hmm. he's ever spoken to an audience since he became Labour leader. You know, mm-hmm. The point being, these are extraordinary times. Um, we've seen the polls change last week. I think all better. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Well, let's take a look now at some of the other stories making news in the world of politics. Home Secretary Priti Patel faces allegations of breaching the ministerial code regarding a meeting with billionaire Tory donor. Work and Pensions Secretary Therese Coffey told Sky News that colleagues must be transparent about who they've met. Mm, so this uh, on Priti Patel. Also, though, a warning about taxes from business leaders for the government. Those leaders say that higher rates could strangle the economic recovery. Tony Danker, the head of the CBI, the biggest business group, is expected to tell an audience in Manchester that hiking taxes on companies is self-defeating and inhibits investment. The criticism comes less than a week after Johnson's government raised the national insurance taxes to help fund health spending. Well, the NHS is launching the world's largest trial of a new blood test that could detect more than 50 types of cancer before symptoms appear. The Galeri test, which is currently available to some people in the US, can spot where in the body the cancers are with a high degree of accuracy. The NHS is hoping that 140,000 people uh, in England uh, will come in England. The health service is inviting to take part in the trials in retail parks and other community locations. Okay, so some of the news in the world of politics. Now to universal credit. So the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, confirmed that the plans to reverse the £20 per week uplift in universal credit will go ahead starting at the end of the month. Then the Work and Pension Secretary, Therese Coffey, suggested that people who do lose that £20 a week payment could work extra hours to make up for the cuts. But scrapping the increase in universal credit will trigger mental illness illness and poorer health for thousands of people. That's according to the Health Foundation. And joining us now is David Finch, who is Assistant Director on Healthy Lives at the Health Foundation. David, welcome to Bloomberg Westminster. Thanks so much for joining us. So look, I I mentioned a couple of um, ministers talking about uh, universal credit. This is becoming a huge issue. The Chancellor Rishi Sunak has always said that the £1,040 per annum increase was temporary. He denies that it would push more people into poverty. You clearly would disagree. Um, 
Absolutely. I mean, I think um, numerous organisations have been um, doing research on that, and um, some of the some of the modelling has shown how this cut could lead to um, hundreds of thousands more people um, falling into poverty, and that's I suppose people falling below the formal threshold. Um, but I think it's 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 clear that the, that twenty pounds a week is very important to the people. Um, entitled to universal credit for some it's around 20% of the um, of the income that they're getting um, already. So it's a, it could be a big drop for those people. And um, what our research has shown is that the, of those people um, kind of worse affected, it's very much concentrated in areas with worse health. Um, and income is so important to the ability for people to have good health. Um, but, but taking that money away is likely to um, to make people's health much worse. Well, the policy was introduced during the pandemic, obviously as a as a as a temporary measure. It's an expensive policy, but you think this is a good use of of, of government money? Um, well, the the UK's benefit system, those kind of the standard rates that people are paid, are some of the lowest in in kind of more in developed countries, um, and over several decades now, their their value has really fallen behind. Um, other people's earnings, um, you know, they were frozen for four years previous to this um, this rise. So actually, even this £20 increase is only, um, I think, if, if it had been increased by um, sort of growth in GDP over the period, um, it, we still would, we're still only giving back. This is still only restoring kind of half of that that real loss of, of the benefit of, um, of the value of benefits. So I think, um, you know, purely for making sure that our, our benefit system is providing people with an adequate standard of living, um, it's important that the um, that this uplift is maintained. Mm. You also hinted at it, but the regional dimension here, you feel that that could be significant. I mean, Labour, for example, has um, put that cost at £2.5 billion, pounds, that, that cutting universal credit... Um, uh, for north, for the north of England and the Midlands would have a two and a half billion pound impact. Um, yes, yeah, so we've um, we've been looking at um, the kind of how many people are on universal credit um, within local areas, and then also the kind of average um, health of those areas, the, the healthy life expectancy, which is how long people can expect to be living in good health through the lifetime. Um, and what we found is that the areas with the highest um, universal population type of the universal credit um, they've got eight years of their healthy life expectancy is eight years lower than in the areas with the um, with lower shares of universal credit so um, what we could expect is actually you know so that, that's a sign of quite wide inequalities in in health with across local areas um, and what we could expect is with with withdrawing greater income from those areas through through um, ending the UC uplift, that we could see health getting worse in those areas in future years. Obviously, many people on universal credit are already working, but given that there are record numbers of vacancies, wouldn't it be better to encourage people uh, into work, into more work, rather than uh, just uh, uplifting benefits? Uh, well, I mean, I think work is clearly um, an important route to improving your income and um and actually from a health perspective there are wider benefits from having the um the the structure of habit of work so um i think you know efforts should be made to to help support people back into work but i think um you know if, if you do get more people back into work then actually increasing these benefit rates um will not you know it won't stop people going into work um and actually you would reduce the number of people um, reliant on it, but what you would have 
then if for people who are struggling to find work, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, churn between sectors as the, um, as the kind of as a result of the different restrictions that have been in place. Um, you know, it provides that safety net for people to mm. to be able to have an adequate standard of living um, while they're trying to find work, or if, or if you know they are struggling to to find new work. Um, the, the issue around um, universal credit has become very politically charged. Um, I mean, a lot of criticism, um, the SNP, for example, the Children's Commissioner, a lot of charities are against this uh, in terms of withdrawing it from people. Do you think that attitudes have changed during the pandemic as well as numbers? Because I noticed that um, you have highlighted that the proportion of working of the working age population in the UK on universal credit has doubled during the pandemic. So, you know, more people are using it and the pandemic has struck. Do you think that attitudes have fundamentally changed in terms of of benefits and how much people need? Um, I think what we what we have definitely seen is um, a shift in the public's attitude towards the role of government here and that they people do now um, are increasingly recognising through um, polling that we've done through the pandemic um, are increasingly sort of recognising that the government has an important role to play in helping to support people's health and in and reducing health inequalities um, and part of that work we've, we've, we've asked whether people do support um, maintaining this uplift beyond um, beyond October and that found that um, around half, so it's like 51%, were in support. But only um, it's only a fifth of people um, actually opposed it. And I think it was around a third of um, conservative voters who would historically be less supportive of these measures actually outright opposed to maintaining the uplift. Looking more broadly at the benefits system, obviously there are lots and lots of problems with the uh, introduction of universal credit. It's a hugely complex uh, uh, system introduced over a number of years. How do you see that working? What's your experience of of how universal credit is is bedding in these days? Uh, well, I think you know, there were there were clearly some significant issues with the with the system when it was um, first being introduced, and I think um, a lot of those come come from having to deal with very complex individual circumstances in designing a system that was that will fit those needs. Um, but what we, you know, what we have seen is through the pandemic, a very large number of claims being made in a very short period of time. Um, and the system has largely coped with those. And I think one of the keys to that was that they've, um, in, in trying to deal with so many claims, they've, they've slightly shifted how they approach um, collecting people's details. Um, and I think those kind of slightly less rigid um, structures within the system have helped to make it more user-friendly for people. And I think that's particularly something that's really important when um, we've seen the kind of large increases in people suffering from poor mental health through the pandemic. Um, you know, there have been historically, there has been, um, mm. research has shown kind of people struggling to use the system, particularly and actually it making people's mental health worse. So I think yeah. it can be very important that they can build on that success in future and make sure that it is easy to use and isn't making people's kind of current mental health worse in future. Just lastly, the impact on children. Um, you know, also the pandemic had a big impact in terms of education for children. What about the health aspects of universal credit on on young people? Um, well, I mean, we, universal credit is ultimately providing a very... Um, 
is obviously providing that safety net for people um, who have lower income. And we know that income is um, really important to help people, um, to support people's health. And that's partly through um, the kind of constraining people's options in, in the things that they can, the sort of types of food that they can buy and how much they can participate in society. Um, and we've also seen sort of family, poorer families particularly building up or debt through the pandemic. So I think um, in the way that it can, having a lack of resources um, can mean that children are going without and maybe unable to participate in society as fully as, as other children. Um, I think it, it really underlines the importance of making sure that the, the um, support you can get through the benefits system is, is adequate and that this is, is maintained in the future. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.